we're laying the groundwork for vector search and how this ends up kind of impacting the service that we end up offering. So what is a vector? A vector is a numeric representation of data and related context. And so if you take a very That's the voice of Ben Flast, director of product management at MongoDB. He's explaining what vectors are. Vectors are a key component of a technology we recently announced as part of the MongoDB platform, MongoDB Atlas. Vector search is built into MongoDB Atlas now, and it's an important advancement. If you're a developer looking to leverage generative AI and machine learning, with your so applications. That's a very this is an episode you're not going to want to miss. So Let's listen in. Of just this string of numbers, you're probably kind of immediately asking yourself, how would you get a vector? And the way that it works is that you would pass your data, whether it be an image or text or audio, through an encoder of some sort. And, and these are machine learning models that basically take this data and transform it into this numeric representation. Okay, so we're talking about the base component of vector search. It's numeric representations of your data. That's the key here. MongoDB Atlas announced in public preview in June of this year, Vector Search is a part of the MongoDB Atlas platform. Vectors, arrays of numbers, numeric representations of your data living right alongside your data in a MongoDB database. Just the beginning in the chain of tools and concepts you'll need to understand as you, as you bridge the gap in your journey to developing applications that leverage generative AI. Got a great episode for you today. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. Let's tune back in to Ben talking about vector search at Dot .local New York City in June of this year. There's some great resources attached to this episode, but you're going to have to check the show notes for links. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a comment and a rating. Share it with a colleague. Stay tuned. Once you've taken data and transformed it into a vector, there are some really interesting properties about these vectors that allow us to provide the service that we're releasing today. And, and kind of a key one is that similar vectors that are plotted in space will be near one another in this high-dimensional space. And so to take a very simple example, if we have kind of a graph in two dimensions, and there are going to be a bunch of two-dimensional graphs that I'm going to show during this presentation, it's important to realize that while two-dimensional graphs are great for kind of showing this concept and understanding what's happening, all of the vectors that we're talking about here are really high dimensional, right? We're talking about thousands of dimensions, which are really you know, impossible to visualize. And so we'll just stick in a two-dimensional world, but kind of keep that again in the back of your mind, because that's really where a lot of the power comes from with this next generation of, of vectors and capabilities. So continuing on with the example, imagine you have a point, and let's say that this point represents man, and there's a, there's a vector associated with it. Um, you could also have another point that represents the word woman, and it would be conceivable that those two pieces of text, when vectorized or embedded, those are you know, synonyms, would find themselves near one another. They would be close together in this high dimensional space because they are semantically similar, right? They have similar meanings. So they're both people or humans, etc. This is kind of a core concept that allows us to provide the service of vector search. If this didn't happen, if this didn't come about because of the way that these pieces of data are embedded and modeled, then it wouldn't be possible for us to provide this service. So that's super exciting. But if you zoom back out again and you say, here I have a bunch of circles. If again, I put them on a graph, I now can kind of think of them as you know, vectors in space. And we're noticing that they actually kind of cluster together. 
So these could be a bunch of different points, maybe movies in some database. And it's conceivable that if you took those movies and embedded the data about them, their plots, you would see that they would show up near one another. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here. And because they show up near one another, we're actually able to draw interesting information from them. But what's kind of core about that information that we're able to draw from them is how they relate to each other. And the way that we determine these relations is kind of through two things. One is how they get embedded. So what the model takes that source data and turns it into in a, a high dimensional vector. And then also how do we calculate the distance between these vectors? To imagine an example here, if we had man and woman and we had king and queen as concepts with one embedding model, one way of representing this data, along with one way of determining the distance, we may find that man and king have a shorter distance and, and are more semantically similar, and woman and queen are more semantically similar, right? That could be produced by having one embedding model and one distance function. And again, we'll get into those details a bit further in a second. But simultaneously, you could also have a different embedding model and use a different distance function that would result in actually man and woman being closer together and more semantically similar and king and queen being more semantically similar. So this is another way that that is kind of determined, which then impacts exactly what happens during vector search. And again, just to reiterate, because I know people are kind of milling in, we're laying the groundwork for vector search and you know how this ends up kind of uh, impacting the service that we end up offering. So we've talked about vectors, how they relate to one another, how they end up falling in this high dimensional space. When it comes to then using these vectors, there are some other important concepts that we need to know. And so we already talked about the fact that like data when transformed into vectors can create these clusters that are semantically similar. So groups of data that have some sort of relevance or, or reference or relationship between them. The uh, K nearest neighbor is a way to go and search through these vectors. That is an algorithm that lets you kind of look at these vectors and find neighbors to them. And K represents the number of neighbors you're looking for when you talk about them. And so K nearest neighbors is a way to look through vectors uh, to find similar ones to a target. When you use K nearest neighbors, you have to define a specific similarity function. And so in Atlas Vector Search, we support three. Uh, there are more that you can use out in the market, but, but these are kind of the, the three most popular ones. The first one is Euclidean distance, which represents the distance between the ends of vectors. Um, the next is cosine, which represents the angle between vectors. And the third is dot product, which is based on both the angle between the vectors and the magnitude. Each one of these functions is good for a different type of use case. And so Euclidean, for instance, is really good for dense data where specific values matter. So for instance, if you wanted to do image similarity, it's really important that this pixel looks just like this pixel. That, that would be a good example of where Euclidean would be relevant. Another option would be cosine, right? And that's where sparse data and orientation is important. And that's kind of complex, but what it really gets down to is if you had examples like text concepts or themes that you wanted to be able to find the distance between, cosine is really good for that because maybe one word can represent a lot about what a paragraph is about more than having like several words repeated. So that's where cosine is good. 
And then dot product is really good for sparse data where both the orientation and the intensity matter together. So once you've decided you're going to use k-nearest neighbors as an algorithm, you know that you're going to use a, a certain type of distance function. The way that all of this kind of becomes a reality is we have to be able to find this information very quickly. And the way this is done is with something called approximate nearest neighbor and uh, what's called a hierarchical navigable small world graph. Now, that's a lot of words, but it's actually you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, approximate nearest neighbor basically takes an approach to finding the nearest neighbors, just like K nearest neighbors does, but it does it in an approximate manner, obviously, which prioritizes speed over accuracy. And what I mean by that is at the margins where we're figuring out does, does this vector fit as a neighbor, you could kind of drop those outliers out, and that's really what the approximate is getting at. So you're not going to get necessarily all of the nearest neighbors, but again, you're going to get the majority. And this is really kind of happening at the margins. And what this allows for is a really fast traversal of these vectors so that you can find semantically similar concepts quickly, which is obviously very important within the concept of a operational database. So those are all the basics. <laughs> so you're all oriented to vector search. You understand more about vectors. Um, there's one other concept prior to talking about the feature itself that I wanted to cover, um, and that's kind of why now. Um, so vector databases have been around for a long time, and we've had vector search inside of MongoDB for actually a very long time in the form of geospatial data. Those can be thought of as two-dimensional vectors that can be searched for other near vectors. But what's different now is that we're looking at vectors in very high-dimensional space, and with the strategy that I just talked about on the prior slide, we know why we're able to look through them fast, but we don't know yet why these high dimensional vectors are able to represent data so well. And, and that really comes down to recent evolutions in machine learning and that encoder model that I talked about much earlier. So pre-2000, we had approaches to, to modeling data in vectors that would use manual feature engineering um, with you know, strategies like bag of words and, and TF ideas. The next evolution over that was something like word to vec and glove, you know, word to vec coming out of Google, a way to represent text in vectors. Um, what followed that in 2013 was, you know, something called the contextual word embeddings. Uh, these kind of added a bit more, allowed you to model even more data within your vectors. And then this was followed in 2018 by a paper about transformers that came out of Google. And the associated BERT models and GPT that allowed you to represent really contextual information inside of your vectors. And this is kind of where a sea change really occurs and vectors become extremely powerful. What we've seen since then is in 2020, large transformers come about representing a ton of contextual information inside of your vectors. And finally, in 2023, GPT-4 and specialization that have led to just even more powerful ways of representing data inside of vectors. And this is what leads us to today, where vector search becomes an extremely powerful capability because you're able to represent so much semantic data inside of these high-dimensional vectors. So that's it for the background. Um, moving on to vector search as a capability, um, the way this works is you and your client, right, uh, and the client being the application, would send your data through an encoder and then write that vector along with your data into vector search, right? So you keep your vectors with your data and write them into the database. And then on the read side, you go and you encode your query 
and submit that in a dollar search stage along with your target vector and submit it to vector search to find neighbors. That's, it's really that simple. Um, the way it ends up getting modeled inside of your documents, right, is that the vectors sit right alongside the data that they vectorized. So in kind of this typical document I'm describing up here, you could have something like, you know, the, the date, the year, regular kind of MongoDB document fields, and then you would have a content field, some, you know, big uh, unstructured text string, and then alongside it you would have a content underscore embedding field, and that would have the array, which is a array of floats, which is the number of dimensions in your vector. The more dimensions, uh, more floating point numbers. Those are one and the same for MongoDB. And it sits right alongside your data. Once you've done that, you'll go and define an index definition. The way you define the index definition is you go into our definition builder, you would select uh, you know, the JSON configuration, and you would insert an index that looks just like this. It's at this point that you say it's a, a KNN index, you tell us how many dimensions you're using in your data, and then you choose your similarity function. You choose your similarity function when you build the index. Um, and it, again, it would be either Euclidean, dot product, or cosine. Once this is done, you're done. The index is built in the background. You don't have to do anything else to sync data, to communicate changes between your data and this new vector search capability. You can just use your new dollar search query, which includes a KNN beta operator, and provide the vector that you're looking for, which is derived from sending your text or image or audio through an embedding model that provides your target vector. You provide the path to where those vectors live inside of your documents, and then you can include a filter, which is going to be a pre-filter that filters data out at query time, and K for the number of neighbors. And so K is you know, how many you want back, similar to a, a limit inside of MongoDB. Uh, the way to think about the filter, by the way, is you are looking for semantically similar data, sure, but maybe you have some hard requirements about that data. For instance, maybe you're looking for super delicious, amazing Chinese restaurants in, you know, New York City. Super delicious, uh, you know, that's, you know, contextual. Uh, New York City, that is a filter, right? You just want things in New York City. So... The filter is important because it's going to filter as we find these neighbors based on the contextual side of things. So this is really helpful to make sure that queries are both very efficient and fast, but also only providing relevant data. And so these get combined inside of the, the stage. So with that, that's how vector search works. But I want to kind of emphasize some of the benefits here. So for those of you familiar with you know, competitive products that are doing vector search out in the market, one thing you have to do is you have to sync data back and forth from your operational store into your vector search capability. You have to continually vectorize it, keep it aligned, and, that, and that's, that's a tax, right? It, it takes a lot of time. Uh, it, it can be brittle. You have to maintain it. With Atlas Vector Search, data is automatically synchronized between the database where it's stored and the vector index that lives right alongside it. You get to work with your data, both in the database for your operational workloads and your semantic search workloads using a single MongoDB query API, and you have a fully managed offering so you can just focus on building the application. This is really the power of vector search when it comes to MongoDB. So now that we understand the technology a little bit better, thanks Ben, let's talk about the business impact. Nobody better to discuss the business impact of this type of innovation than Andrew Davidson, Senior Vice President of Products at MongoDB, had the pleasure of sitting down with Andrew in June of this year, also at the MongoDB.local New York City Conference. Let's check out the conversation I had with Andrew. 
uh, vector search within the platform of MongoDB, what does that mean for our users and our customers? Sure, so let's take a step back. I think this is sort of the moment that we've all been waiting for. Those of us who are thinking about this moment of when will developers finally have that shift left moment for machine learning and artificial mm -hmm. intelligence? We've been waiting for this. I think a lot of us have seen and observed that machine learning and artificial intelligence, back when we used to call it that, rather than AI slash ML, right. now we've flipped it. When we used to call it that, a lot of the center of gravity for this was happening downstream mm -hmm. from software, and it was being sponsored by data people mm -hmm. as opposed to software people, which is confusing nomenclature. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. traditionally, MongoDB has been more for the software developer right. unless the uh, data engineer, not that those roles are not extremely, mm -hmm. extremely mm -hmm. important, but down in the data engineering and data science world, which typically traditionally has worked off data legs mm -hmm. kind of away from where the software is operational. In that paradigm, you could see this kind of, hey, I'm going to take my data, I'm going to train a model off it, and then I'm going to go find a way to operationalize that model in my software back in the line of business. Hmm. There was an organizational problem with that and a challenge with that, I think, that made it a lot, very difficult, frankly, for a lot of data science and even machine learning engineering teams to go add the value they wanted to be able to add because mm -hmm. they were so far removed organizationally and yeah. systems-wise from where the data was born and put to use in, in software. I think this is the moment in which everyone can see now that this shift's left. A lot of these become libraries that developers can build with. Mm -hmm. And yes, the, the sophisticated customer is going to be out there that's going to be building their own models. That's not going away, and that's only going to all accelerate. Mm -hmm. But there's this realization now that operational data, which is powering the back end of software and a software-defined economy, mm -hmm. is the center of action. And I think... Generative AI and what we're seeing with large language models is one permutation of that that's mm -hmm. certainly top of mind right now. Uh, if you look at some of the most popular frameworks for building those generative AI-enriched applications, mm -hmm. think like a, an expert system that uh, will take advantage of your unique business domain or knowledge base and provide a cogent chat-based experience that explains context from your knowledge base, mm -hmm. you can build those types of things today typically taking advantage of input from a user asking for what they're asking for. Yeah. You send that into a vector search database, which then allows you to find from your corpus of actual knowledge mm. related and relevant context to what they're asking about. Mm -hmm. You then take that data that was probably stored in your operational database and put that back through the prompt pipeline into a large language model, which then provides a cogent response mm. to the user. So what you're doing is you're taking it, the large language model is is crafting the response, but you're feeding it hmm. based on context that's specific to your business domain, inspired by what the user asked for. It's yeah. kind of a loop, it's a flow. It's a really cool concept, and we're seeing a lot of early applications being built this way. Well, we, of course, realized, why should you have to use a whole separate engine to hmm. take advantage of this vector piece? Yeah, You're going to go generate these vector embeddings mm -hmm. from your source data. Why not just be able to build a vector search index in your developer data platform mm. where your data already is. So big surprise, that's, that's the inspiration for us to do this and that's what we've launched into public preview. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are you, is, do you think everyone's familiar with kind of what these vectors even are? Well, I think it, it might help to have a bit of an explanation. D to demystify these a little bit, essentially what we're dealing with with vectors is the idea that we can now summarize information or meaning from source data 
into a numeric representation, essentially a list of numbers. We call mm -hmm. this a vector, a vector embedding. Now, the summary is being done by a machine learning model. Mm -hmm. There's popular models that you can take off the shelf, use it like a library or an inference mm -hmm. endpoint. So you could say, hey, here's an essay or a poem or a song or a soundbite or a movie clip. And if you send it to the right model, you'll get a summary of that in a numeric form. Mm -hmm. Cool, that's great. What that lets you do is give the computer a way that the computer understands to mm. compare that to other things. Mm. You know, a computer doesn't know what a dog and a cat is. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't know that a house and a skyscraper are something different entirely. Mm -hmm. But if you were to describe on a two-dimensional vector space the fact that a dog and a cat are going to be closer together in these points mm. in a simplified two-dimensional vector space than a building and a house, which are going to be way over here. I mean, sorry, building and a skyscraper and a house, which are going to be closer together but in a different part of that space. Mm. Computer doesn't need to know what a dog and a cat is, but it can now see in a relative sense the relationship. Infer, yeah. And this becomes a general building block where you realize, I could build all kinds of interesting use cases where I can infer related concepts mm -hmm. if I'm willing to create these vector embeddings and take advantage of a vector search engine. And we realized, of course, that should be something that's critically part of your developer data mm -hmm. platform. It's just kind of an obvious enhancement. So yeah. we couldn't be more thrilled to have it right now. Yeah, super exciting. Thanks for that, that great explanation. And it sounds familiar. It sounds like something we already have in the, in the database in the form of 2D geo-indexes, no? Yeah, in some ways, well, you know, if you think about kind of I always remind people that MongoDB has always been a developer data platform. Yeah. That in the earliest days, it was all about saying, hey, what's the industry context? Mm -hmm. The origin moment of cloud. Distributed virtual machines at developers' fingertips. Mm. How do we make that useful? Well, why don't we create software that can be distributed as a distributed system that pre presents itself as a document interface? Mm. And then the rise of mobile and what does the developer need in that moment? Geospatial primitives. So we, mm. you know, we introduce these geospatial primitives, and this leads to that kind of uh, mass proliferation of those early mobile applications that we all know and love that were built on MongoDB. In the years to come, when we've added, you know, kind of that long, hard road that you remember mm -hmm. to mission criticality, multi-document yeah. massive transactions, all the bells and whistles, mm. the launch of Atlas, and our fully declarative as a service bringing the agility that we always had in the data model to the infrastructure, realizing that that's just as important. On the foundation of Atlas, we can now add capabilities much faster than ever before. Mm. We've been able to add new classes of workloads, typically powered by new classes of indexes. Mm -hmm. Atlas Search, the power of inverted search indexes, the domain name for that, the ability to essentially take natural language processing and put that in in unique application form factors and make that accessible to all builders, mm -hmm. time series capabilities, and now vector search yeah. and beyond. The, the whole idea is behind that elegantly integrated document interface, you should be able to power the vast majority of the vast majority of the features and applications you're going to build. Mm. Now, do you see a specific use case or industry diving in first with vector search? With vector search? You know, the industry that's probably furthest along on this would be those who've traditionally been looking for advanced semantic search, which mm. is more often than not going to be e-commerce, where mm. e-commerce storefronts, they've been always trying to make sure that they're one step ahead of making sure that whatever you're looking for, mm -hmm. they're providing the wares that they think you might be interested in, mm -hmm. even if you didn't know to use the right keyword, if you will, yeah. in traditional mm -hmm. text search. So in the e-commerce domain, this is there, there, there's a lot of sophistication, but what we're seeing now is 
it goes beyond semantic search and it starts becoming a vehicle for doing these cool generative use cases. It's not only large language models. You can do this for other kinds of generative use cases like uh, stable diffusion style image synthesis models. Mm, yeah. So for example, let's say you're creating a platform for creatives, mm -hmm. a generative platform for creatives. You know, a creative might come in and say, I'd love to see an incredible design for this vision I had. Yeah. Well, what you want to do is go generate a bunch of images and then show those images to that creative and basically ask them which ones of these are great, which ones of these are terrible, mm -hmm. and continue to use that to learn and improve and kind of have this mm. loop. Alignment. Of continuous improvement, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you used analogy, an analogy the other day. Uh, MongoDB, it's always been about the developer, increasing efficiency, and it, it sort of becomes this bicycle metaphor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, so I mean... Uh, as, of course, Steve Jobs said, if a computer is a bicycle for the right, mind, yeah. our philosophy in many ways has been to be a, a, a bicycle for the developer's yeah. mind. And I think that I, you know, how can we make that claim? Well, it's all anchored in the idea that traditionally software developers have spent most of their time wrestling with state. Mm -hmm. We can never lose sight of that. Right. It's, it's, you know, I, I sometimes think to myself, it's not really about the data. It's about the software. Mm. That's what we're here for. And what that makes me realize is sometimes we take for granted that people even know the segment that we play in. Mm -hmm. And I, I usually refer to it as operational data. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's interesting that operational data, which is the dominant part of the data industry, mm -hmm. is what we focus on. Yeah. It's not something people on the street talk about. They talk about analytical data and other classes of data. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but I realized, why is that? Why do they all talk about analytical? And I think it's because analytical data, it's intuitive to people. It's like mm -hmm. a giant Excel spreadsheet. I get the idea of getting insights from data. Mm -hmm. It's intuitive to folks. Operational data is so wonderful, precisely because we don't know it exists, precisely mm -hmm. because it's abstracted away by the incredible software that developers have been able to build. Yeah. The, the software of today that you interact with throughout your entire daily life, all the time, we're interacting with software as we speak in, in many ways right now, mm. we don't think that we are. But all of that state is landing in operational databases. Yeah. It's the workhorse behind the scene. And uh, for us to empower those developers to build and not be dealing with all the plumbing and the lower level tech debt minutia, but instead to be operating at a level in which they can build these form factors of the future and experiences mm. of the future, because they're building on this abstraction. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Exciting times. So MongoDB as software, humble beginnings. So in this brief amount of time, yeah. it's, it's become a platform. So many capabilities built into the platform, offering developers economies of scale, efficiencies. I want to ask you to maybe prognosticate. What, what do you see in the future now that we're we're in the world of AI and uh, advances are coming so quickly. What, what do you see in the future for MongoDB and the Atlas platform? It's a great question. I sometimes think of what we're trying to do is to be a build anything platform for operational data. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, this, this has been a, an interesting year, right? On the, we sort of started the year in this mode of it's a time of optimization. It's a mm -hmm. time of being able to do more without necessarily having more to do it with. And, so therefore, it started becoming a, a time of consolidation and mm -hmm. asking what really matters? What, do I, what, are, what are the technologies and platforms that I really need to be building mm -hmm. on to let me do the vast majority of what I need to do? 
And then we saw this kind of heat come back into the industry with the rise of generative AI. Mm -hmm. And I think it's all kind of a reminder that we're going to see a Cambrian explosion of new applications mm. in the years to come. It was inevitable, irrespective of generative AI, but that's going to accelerate these trends. And in connection with that Cambrian explosion, we need to make sure that we're one step ahead of how are people building modern applications? What are they going to need mm. to build the applications of tomorrow? And the only way we can be on the pulse of that is to be talking to our customers, talking yeah. to builders, and just being, being out there. And that's why we're here on this conference today. Yeah. That's why we're making sure to speak to every customer that's building with AI. You know, what are the new... Mm. What are the new frameworks? What are the new stacks? What are the new languages and or ways of building that are going to emerge? You know, I was speaking to a, a generative AI-related customer the other day, and they were sharing how, when you think about the software development life cycle mm -hmm. in that domain, mm -hmm. we're just at the beginning of figuring out how to control what does it mean to, to make a change happen that you need to be sure isn't going to go cause some chaos. Like mm -hmm. if you're... The more, the more sophisticated these software-defined agents become, the more a software change could go do something that you didn't intend it to do. Yeah. So how do you test for that? And so this customer had built a, an entire domain-specific language and framework for thinking about and controlling and testing for that. And I think we're just at the beginning of this explosion, not just in applications, but in frameworks and ways of building, managing, scaling this new class of applications that's coming. And... I think we've seen this happen time and time again. Software developers find new ways to move away from the old concerns, mm -hmm. open up that white space, and learn how to operationalize, yeah. mature, uh, and bring to, to the fore the next generation. That's what's happening now. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining me today, talking about all of the great things happening at the show and beyond. Vector Search, a key development. Uh, is there anything else you want to share with uh folks listening before we, we wrap up? You know, the, the, the only other item that we didn't mention that I, you know, was the other exciting thing from the keynote is the general availability of our relational migrator capability. Oh, yeah. Mm. And the reason that's exciting is assuming people see the value of modernizing to MongoDB and we have to earn that right every day, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, mm -hmm. If we're not showing value for folks, then what's the point? Right on. But many folks who see, oh, wow, enabling my software developers to build software that's versatile, that can reflect the true heterogeneity and complexity of the real world, mm -hmm. that allows me to scale and evolve. For those folks who want that, what we're trying to do is lower the activation energy required to mm -hmm. move away from those traditional models from the past. Yeah. And having software is, a, is, is an important step. It's by no means the only step. Mm -hmm. We're here to help our customers on that journey mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and frankly, we're quite excited to think about what some of the code assist capabilities oh, yeah. that are coming out will do to accelerate that trend. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm excited to watch. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks once again for joining me. Well, there you have it. Vectors, vector search, all built into the MongoDB Atlas platform. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Ben and Andrew for helping explain these groundbreaking innovations. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe. Consider providing a comment, some feedback, and share this episode with a colleague. Thanks everyone, have a great day.